So you need to do that. Actually, the same thing in chemistry. You need to do this reaction very rapidly, and you need to have these building blocks very rigid. They react randomly, and then you don't give them time to really kind of reorganize into kind of a more thermodynamically stable. Dr. Alaidin Alzbayez's research really does sound like something out of a classic video game. But his work is more than just a fun challenge of polymer chemistry Tetris. It's the foundation for new green technologies that could soon help save our planet. In this season 3 episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life, we speak with another member of the Chemical and Engineering News' 2021 Talented 12 about their work and trends in their field. I'm your host, Paolo Brayuca from Thermo Fisher Scientific. We began by asking Dr. Azbaye about how and where his scientific curiosity first took root. So when I was young, actually, I was a very curious child. Um, so I used to really kind of open electronic devices and I tried to see what's inside. I was really fascinated. You know, it wasn't the 80s when we used to have the recording machines. And, you know, uh, it was really fascinating to me, like, you know, how these devices work, like what's the magic behind them? So sometimes I used to break some of the electronic devices. So my I think that the what really was helpful was my father was really very um, kind of supportive in that regard so even if I broke some devices or something like that like he was very uh, tolerant to that and he was even encouraging me to do to do more of that uh, so that really helped a lot so that grew farther actually um, uh, until uh, to a point that I was able to fix electronic devices without really taking any formal training on that <laughs> And then after that, I start deviating more towards science in general, you know, kind of uh, more interested to know kind of how matter is, is made of, uh, how, you know, the kind of like the, the, the reaction work, the, chemi the chemical reactions work. And at the same time, also, I had my uncle. He had a PhD in organic chemistry, actually, from France. And he was the most successful um, educated person in our family. So I was also like very inspired by him. He, he worked for Nestle. So that was, you know, all played really a role. And then I would say the last piece of really kind of inspiration for me to choose chemistry was when Ahmed Zouel, um, you know, the Nobel laureate in chemistry, uh, was, uh, you know, he, he, he was in the U.S., but he's originally from Egypt. So he was the first kind of originally Arab person to, to, to win the Nobel Prize in chemistry. So that was actually right in the high school, <laughs> when I was in the high school. Uh, so right before I, I went to college. That was really kind of the last piece of inspiration that I got there. Yeah, I mean, I want to go to chemistry the next year. Uh, and obviously, as you, as you grow older, you also... It's, it's interesting how, how, how the way the way you comment right from Syria to Saudi Arabia it's, it's a difference it's it, it was a challenge but you know it was kind of a, a an in-between step and then going to Canada was it was a bigger step and, and, a, and a more challenging one perseverance or the capacity to stick to challenges or to to approach them right because when you particularly in a science field there's, there's a lot of low days right there's a lot of times when your experiments don't work as you expect or you know, there's, a there's a lot of unexpected results and a lot of disappointment and you need to just carry through do you think this is giving you an edge yeah when so in my master's for example i had a, a, a master's advisor and then in my phd phd advisor and then i had another advisor for my postdoctoral studies each of these people really taught me something that's extremely important so for example when i was in my phd at some point, I had very low patience towards a certain research area. But my advisor really taught me how to be really patient. Um, so patience was, was something. So from each of these people, I really learned something that kind of shaped me who I am now. 
I was also kind of fascinated about how you catch you you, you caught immediately the you know the, the the different approach between doing academic and industrial research um so the you know the sort of like exploration uh and sort of the, the intellectual challenge of the academic research on one hand and the the, the pragmatism of, of of you know looking for an actual application that you can sell in industry and um and you know how how, how you look at this thing did you realize this before deciding to move into industry or is this something that you kind of learn after you started doing industrial work yeah that, that's a good very good question uh so i think uh i would say to be honest even when i was a phd i was not really interested that much in becoming a professor um because i knew that i really wanted like i like to work on the front end of the research like you know making things that have impact that have like you know people would you know see the the result of what i'm doing i i don't want to be working on things that are very very long term or just like so um so i would say working with will Dectel was really kind of like the, the the amazing kind of experience that i had before it you know i had the transition to industry because like um Again, like the, the the mentality of the group was really nice in that perspective, and that pro- probably one of the reason why I choose even working with Will Dictel in the first place is because I saw also uh, most of his work was centered around covered organic frameworks, which are made in one or two steps maximum. Uh, so I really like that. Uh, you you can you can make quickly materials, and then you can see their their nice application, and then you can really um, see, see see the influence or the impact of these materials. Um, so then when I went to industry. Uh, I was better prepared for it. Uh, there were some challenges in there, and I really kind of like the way that I approached that is thinking somehow outside the box and let's try to make some technologies that are not going to affect the mechanical properties of that particular you know composite material. And uh, I really thought about immediately. The, the first thing I thought about is I don't want to make new things like in the lab. I want to look at commercial kind of uh, materials leverage some some chemicals that are already in the market and try to see if we can have some of these chemicals you know solve these problems that's so that's but that was very practical because like if you can do that you are you are already starting with commercial material instead of really developing something new making some new molecules it's going to be higher hurdle hurdle to really kind of imply like apply that type of research whereas if you start with something that's more kind of already available in the market solve a problem and then you know that it's going to be go to market much faster. So I think that really kind of I, I was already re- really ready for industrial setup right after kind of with the Tesla. And I think that really grew even more over time. How do you put all these pieces together, right? Uh, the being being imaginative, imaginative and pragmatic at the same time, or uh, you know uh, being a problem solver, but you know ensuring that. That, that that something is 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 practical it becomes something usable uh, uh you know which which is which is key for uh, for an industrial research is you know can, can we discuss about some of these aspects in terms of the imagination i think that that what really helped um i'm a visual person um so the way that i i usually um uh, so kind of look at things is more like you know i i have a lot of imagination in terms of like looking at things and try to imagine things in the the kind of like really three-dimensional space in my mind that i kind of think like even when i i, I used to study chemistry the, the only way that i was able to re- understand equations is by imagining how molecules in the three dimensions their structure and they are reacting with each other I can't really memorize things by just like you know looking at the at the text and just I, I can't do that. Imagination was 
was a huge part of the way I think in general. Um, and I, I really think to be like imagination is is a really one of the most powerful skills that you need to have if you are going to be a successful scientist because knowledge is is amazing but if you would like to make a step up performance in something if you want to make, to make a breakthrough in something you, you knowledge is not is not enough if you would like to make something like a breakthrough you have to step out of the kind of current kind of knowledge barrier um, that's that's you know that's in the field you know you are working on uh, so it's it's uh, you you have to have imagination to be able to kind of step out like you know um, think outside the box and step out of that 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 barrier or boundary and then you can push that boundary even farther um, and then you can provide some kind of a new perspective or new angle at looking at things you have to have imagination and then if you really couple that with with as you said pragmatism and practicality and you know how like thinking about um, you know things that are more applicable and that can be more easily adapted by by you know like industry um, and then can be translated into products if you couple these two together i think that you can really make some, something very powerful it's refreshing to think that even in an industrial setting where there's a lot of data and a lot of control over experiments right this the, the still the, the human factor playing playing a playing a role i, I like i like to jump into some of the details of, of your of your work because you, you've done a lot of different things right and and, and maybe maybe we can, we cannot touch touch them all but um, you know uh, uh, probably discussing a bit more of, of you know the, the problems and the chemistries your polymers you you be working on in your career we, we can we can get a glimpse of, of your creative process and it would be, would be really fascinating so uh, I don't know do you want to start from what you did at uh, um, uh, you know, with Dictel, uh, you know, with your uh, cyclodextrin polymers, and uh, that that might, that seems like an interesting enough idea uh, yeah. to to discuss. I, I totally agree because I'm 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 very like you know I can't discuss everything about it right because it's published and it's uh, so it's uh, um, I think it's a perfect start uh, to talk about that. Uh, it's uh, so when we, so we got a big grant actually from uh, NSF at that time. Um, to work on, uh, you know, making some sustainable uh, polymers because I was part of also the Center for Sustainable Polymer in the University of Minnesota, which is funded by NSF. So um, the, the motivation for that particular grant was really to kind of, you know, was given to Will Dectel to really develop some sustainable materials for solving some big problems. It was just like an open thing, uh, you know, it, it was, you know, up to us to think about like which kind of application or which area we should think about. Uh, but then... Um, I think it was kind of like uh, probably in, in, in about a month of time, uh, constant discussion between uh, me and, and Will Dectel that um, we, you know, we came kind of like, um, it, it was kind of, uh, we thought about like cyclodextrin uh, because we know cyclodextrin is a very sustainable material. It's, it has a huge application everywhere. And I think um, also we know that it's being used for water purification, but during the, that kind of month of discussion, uh, we found out that there's 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 a like a gap there. Um, there's never been any high surface area cyclodextrin polymer before. And uh, Will Dectel Lab is really specialized in making porous polymers, right? But the hurdle was that this is you can't use cyclodextrin and make a organic framework with it. Uh, you can't do that. It doesn't have the geometry that allows you to do it. Um, so you need to think about like a really randomly kind of like. Uh, porous high surface area polymers and we, we, we haven't done that much like that uh, you know in, in with the tail stuff and that was actually you know came that we need to develop a chemistry for it we need to develop a reaction we need to think about cross linker what is the cross linker that would enable us 
So that's where I kind of really dig, dig into the kind of literature and uh, kind of like really understanding what has been done in there, what are the linkages that have been to, uh, kind of used with cyclodextrin, what's also the, the, the cross-linkers. And I really realized that there's a gap in there that all of these, either um, the cross-linker or the linkages, are relatively long or flexible. So flexible meaning that they have really kind of like a rotational kind of freedom around them. So you can imagine when you have a network where uh, you have kind of the, the, the cross-linker or the, the linkages are flexible, like the, the monument is freely kind of to, to rotate and adapt a different conformation, then if you have your adsorbent materials, like you think about beads, for example, they swell in water, right? So then uh, you have a little bit of a porosity around them. But then if you try to dry them, they just collapse because your network is very flexible. Right, because they can monomers can really kind of like rotate and they will adapt the more like they will try to reduce that free space inside them. Now, the only way to be able to, to lock that is to have a very rigid network from inside, and that's actually where the BRICS game came into my mind. That you need to think about, like, uh, you know, this type of non complementary shape uh, pieces, yeah, like, te like Tetris. Like the video game Tetris, yeah, okay. Exactly, exactly. So, so basically, if you play with that game very quickly and without really carefully kind of reorienting those pieces, they will just drop randomly and then you will have lots of voids inside them, right? So you need to do that, actually, the same thing in chemistry. You need to do this reaction very rapidly and you need to have these building blocks very rigid. They react randomly and then you don't give them time to really kind of reorganize into kind of a more thermodynamically stable. <laughs> so it's just. So you need to you approach your chemistry like a crappy Tetris player, like, like, exactly. like, like myself. It's a great, it's great. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That, 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 that was really the, the big inspiration be, be behind that. And that's why I came, I, I started reading literature and trying to find a, a cross linker. I want to have a direct linkage with cyclodextrin. I don't want to have, like, for example, if you have an ester, you have two bonds between the two monomers, if you have an ester, right? I want, uh, not, not two bonds, sorry, like uh, two atoms, right? So I want to have just one atom in between the two monomers. To, to really minimize that kind of rotational freedom. And that's why tetrafluorodextrinitrile was really interesting to me because it can react, like if we, we can react with cyclodextrin, then the oxygen of like the, the hydroxyls on the cyclodextrin can attack that ring, do the nucleophilic aromatic substitution, kick off the fluorines, and you have a direct linkage in there with an aromatic ring that's very rigid. That's actually, then in this case, you have a very rigid network in, in, in that way. Let me do a step back just for someone who might not be familiar with the chemistry of cyclodextrin. So cyclodextrins are polymers of carbohydrates, right? They are cyclic carbohydrates pretty much. So they're basically full of hydroxyl groups around, isn't it? Yes, that's true. Is this what um, um, makes for their highly, up, uh, uh, highly absorption cap capabilities? Is, is it like hydrogen bonding type of things with the, with the OA? Uh, it's actually, yeah, so, so in terms of the chemical structure itself, right, the, the, um, so it's similar to cellulose, right, but if you compare cellulose, for example, with, or glucose with a better cyclodextrin, the cyclodextrin is way better, cellulose doesn't take uptake. So the reason for that is because the beta cyclodextrin has kind of a, a cup-like structure. I don't know if so. It has a large kind of like um, you know diameter kind of like um, um, uh, right. So so it has it, it's really like a cup that's kind of a narrow. It, it goes like a cone kind of type of structure. Um, so the, the kind of the larger kind of like diameter, um, um, I, I would say a cup side of it um, enables it to really form kind of host gas complex with uh, organic molecules because the inside that cup is hydrophobic. Outside that cup is hydrophilic, 
right? So that's why the the many of the organic pollutants have lots like kind of hydrophobic parts on them that, that that does not like water, and that's why they go inside this cup because they like it. So it forms this kind of complex because of its like stereostructure. That's what makes it really amazing for sequestering organic like materials. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for information on how to access content recommendations from our guests and how to register for a free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt. And in the case you haven't done it yet, check out the more than 80,000 laboratory chemicals now on thermofisher.com. And now, back to our conversation. You were looking at uh, cross-linking together these this monomers of psychodrexins and, and, and make up orderly or more or less three-dimensional structure with it. So the, the, the idea was from, from the chemical perspective, doing a cross-linking between whatever all the OH groups you had on the surface of that, isn't it? Exactly. Okay, exactly. Perfect. perfect. Yeah. Then we exactly. can go back to your chemistry for the cross-linking. That was interesting. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah. So we decided about tetrafluorotyphthionitrile. The hurdle was actually that there has never been any reaction uh, or like the, the nucleophilic aromatic substitution reaction between uh, aliphatic hydroxyls and the uh, aromatic fluorides. There's not had, like, there, there were some polymers with catechol type of like, um, like where you have like phenolic kind of like oxygens on um, a, a, a phenyl ring. This, you can imagine this is more nucleophilic, right? Because like it's, it's, the acidity is much, it's much uh, higher basically. Um, for the hydroxyls, the acidity is much lower. So it's very, it's, it's not easy to provide a, a nucleophilic oxygen to really be able to do the nucleophilic aromatic substitution reaction. So that, that was a new kind of, uh, that was a challenge for us. And, um, that's why I spent a little bit of a, like some time to develop this reaction to try to find what are the base that I can really um, kind of uh, drive this reaction where I can uh, remove that proton from the hydroxyl on the cyclodextrin and then allow the cyclodextrin to really attack the the the, the aromatic ring um, or the aromatic fluoride and then kick off the fluorides from that um, and then you need to to, to to stabilize also the fluoride anions that are a result of that reaction. Um, so that's kind of, um, you know, even thinking about like what are, what's the medium that you need to have because like if you do this reaction in water, you cannot do it, right? Because water can interfere in the reaction. You need to have a protic solvent that does not participate in the reaction. Uh, so I, you know, they think about THF was 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 good in that regard, but cyclodexin is not soluble in THF. That's another problem. And that's why actually in the, the very first re, re kind of type of material we made was the yield was lower than 20%. It was very low yield. But because the material was extremely interesting, interesting, that paper got into nature <laughs> because like it was it was just something really like very new reaction, very new type of material that solved big problem. But then in the later papers that we had, we improved that. We added uh, a binary mix like uh, solvent of the THF with DMF so that we improved the solubility a little bit of cyclodextrin, and uh, so that's why. You, you know, you were able to do more, the reaction more in homogeneous conditions where you can have a higher yield. We were able to boost that yield up a little bit. So, so this this is applied for remediation, right? The, removing pollutants from water or even air, I suppose. Um, so, how how stable are these materials in the sort of even potentially harsh conditions, right, or real life application? 
that was the, one of the difficulties is how to characterize that right it's uh, the solid like it's an insoluble in anything even if you heat it in dmso um so it, it does not break um so um so that was really highly stable material and uh, all the most of the nmr characterization is all done in the solid state nmr even fluorine nmrs that we've done um you know um carbon nmr whatever it's all in the solid state you can you can there's no way you can really get that into solution and then you can characterize it so it's 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 highly stable it must be an amazing feeling to know that you basically invented a material that uh, as as a real life application and could 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 really be valuable and life changing that that must be an amazing feeling this is a great story but you've done actually more you know at Arkema you you work on the material that you used to to make these wind turbines blades which is which is kind of amazing can can you can you tell us anything about that my work in Arkema is that I worked in a team that was really aiming to develop the very first recyclable wind turbine, um, you know, like thermoplastic where you can thermo shape it and, you know, you can even uh, not only thermo formable, but so basically you can heat it and then you can make it different shapes. So that's kind of part of kind of recyclability, but also Arkema did beyond that, that they, they were able also to find a way to depolymerize that. Uh, so that you can heat that, yeah, like you can you can heat that composite, and you can really break the break the polymer back to the monomer level. That that's really fascinating. Uh, I'm I'm really happy to, to have been part of that that big project, and um, it really worked very well. And the that, that material got commercialized the year uh, almost the year I left Arkema in 2018 at the end of 2018 almost. And 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 then now you work on yet a completely different. Uh, application right now now you're working on uh, uh, this this uh, technology which is called uh, chemical mechanical parallelization which is using the manufacturing of microchips and by the way this is something that we have discussed in i think it was episode four of series one so i invite the audience to go and check but we we actually put the attention back then to the slurries but you actually work on the pad part of the technology uh, and, and also chemically, it's completely different. So these are polyurethane type of polymers, aren't they? Uh, so it's, it's an incredibly diverse career. And, and I, I, you know, I'd, I'd, like, I'd love if you could tell us a bit more about that. Maybe starting from a bit of a description of what chemical mechanical planarization is. Yeah, I, I would love to do it. So CMP is a process used uh, throughout the chip fabrication process. So as we know that the chips are made on kind of a silicon wafer. So kind of like, you know, the, type of disks, right? Um, they can be like 200 millimeter uh, wide and uh, or in diameter. The Each wafer contains really hundreds, hundreds of, of chips in it uh, that are built in it. So you, you kind of use, you know, you build the chip or you, you know, in terms of the fabrication on that wafer. And then after that, you dice the, the, the kind of, uh, you know, the chips from the wafer and that you get your chips and then you can, you know, you can, you can package whatever you can do with it. Um, so, uh, throughout this chip fabrication, so when you usually like, you know, the, the if you look at the cross section of the chip, you would see really kind of layers of like different different metals. Uh, they could be tungsten, they could be copper, they could be, you know, like a, a lot of different materials um, that, that are kind of built, built into, the, into the chip itself. And then you have the semiconductor also layers in it. The, these layers are built sequentially. 
when you deposit the the kind of the layers you need to all like all the time you need to really planarize the surface because you always like you cannot easily control the deposition of the of the kind of like materials either the metal or the semiconductor on the on the chip on the um, kind of after lithography right after you make the pattern that you, you would like to have um, so then um, so after you deposit the the new layer let's say you always have excess material in areas that you don't want this material to be in that's why you need to planarize you need to kind of really uh, remove the excess material uh, from the kind of like areas that you don't want this excess like you want you want basically to have really fine tuning over the or control over the the kind of uh, the, the patterns that you have in there you can't do that without you know with any method that you have to use uh, CMP in there to really planarize and have the feature kind of like the fine tuning of or the, the fine control of the feature shape or dimensions um, on the on the chip itself. And so you you develop you work on the materials used for these pads, which is which is basically the uh, the the yeah the, the the material that that creates the friction right and, and between uh, basically that you got your wafer. The, the, the microchip, you have your slurry in between and then you have your pads that they probably rotate in some way and that's, that's the way you create this mechanical friction. So I suppose you work on controlling a, a huge number of variables during the polymerization process and, and probably you need to create different materials depending on the type of slurry or the type of microchip that, that has to be worked for in, in the application. So. So that's a nice thing about polyurethanes. The formulation space is huge. Polyurethanes are like not only thermomechanical properties, the viscoelastic properties of polyurethane and the first separation phenomena or first mixing that, that happened um, is amazing. It, it adds like a lot of different kind of like, sometimes you can have the bulk properties similar between two materials, but they behave completely different because they have like some thermo kind of thermomechanical uh, probably like you know at different temperatures they behave differently even though they behave similar at certain temperature but at other temperatures they behave differently completely different and uh, yeah so polyurethanes are more of a family of polymers rather than being a, a specific so do you, do you have a lot of freedom in the choice of monomers that you use there huge huge polyurethanes uh, it's just like I, I can't really emphasize how huge the formulation space is I, I just love working in that space because it's just like, like, as I told you, like some, sometimes like you have some bulk properties, like what really fascinates me more is sometimes you, you make certain properties. You think that they would behave in a certain way, right? Because from previous experience, you know that similar parts of that particular properties behave in a certain way. But you discover that new, new material behave completely different. So there's something else that you need to dig more in there. And uh, sometimes the microstructure, there's something in the microstructure makes it completely different. It's just like amazing. It's just like imagination is really a huge part of what we do in, in CMP. And I suppose that in DuPont, you have this sort of richness of competences and access to different types of expertise. So this is truly multidisciplinary, isn't it? It's a huge. So we, I mean, we have a lot of synergy between the different groups in terms of like, you know, the, 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 um, the slurry and the pads. And we have lots of modeling as well. We have like, it's, it's, it's a, like, there's no way one scientist can think from all perspective. We all, all the time talk like different expertise, talk about different, like the same problem. Everybody, you know, like everyone brings kind of like the solution or the idea from his perspective, from his experience, because like it's, it's a highly collaborative area. It's amazing, right? Because, you know, 
this is such an important part of a process that makes some of the things that are disrupting the world as we know it, right? So uh, uh, every one of us touches the product of your world pretty much every day, right? You know, how many electronic devices do we have around? So it's amazing. So thinking that you have a role to play in that, that must be, a, 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 you know, very exciting. By the way, uh, the enthusiasm you speak about there makes me reluctant about asking the next question I had in mind because I, I wanted to ask you whether you are always missing the sort of freedom that a more academic type of career or research might give you. Because usually in the industry, you tend to be more constrained. You know, you have uh, the, the commercial parameters that you don't necessarily have in, in, in academia. Maybe in academia, you need to ensure that you can get your next funding, but <laughs> it's a different type of thing, right? But it, from the way you're describing what you do, uh, it, it doesn't seem that you miss that at all. Yeah, yeah. So the, I would say so. So maybe, I mean, different people from different industries have different experiences, but at least in my situation in Arkema and DuPont, I did not have this problem. To be honest, uh, there, there's lots of freedom around what research we do. I mean, at least the people, the, the managers I worked with are very open-minded and probably, I mean, this is the nice thing about big companies is they have like, you know, if you have some ideas and if you like, to, like, they also have a lot of programs, like programs around fundamentals. Like most of my work has really focused on fundamental structure, property relationship of polyurethanes. It's because, um, you know, um, like they, they have the capacity capacity for that. They would like to build on knowledge and they would like to really improve their kind of understanding and their ability to tune the structure and the properties. Um, so that that gives you a lot of freedom in terms of the science that you can do. And I really, I had like even a couple of years, I was working just on really expanding the material toolkit of, of, of you know, some of the parts we have. And um, I had tremendous freedom in there, a lot of resources, no no issues at all with that. Um, and that that was, was really amazing. The same thing in they have a lot of like tolerance and they they even actually encourage their scientists to even more think about like how um, you know you can uh, dive deep into the, the, the research problem not just like you know solve it on the surface and then not understand really what's how you solved it they would like really to, to understand why it's because like when you understand more you can do more and you can have more like better so uh, so i in at least in my experience in these two companies i haven't had this problem it's like it's like a mix between academic and industrial research together and that's really i enjoyed it and you probably come with the right mindset right because we, we spoke about your pragmatism and how you like things that make sense you don't need to you don't want to be too byzantine in your research or you want to be to the point you care about the applications this this has been a really fun chat, Aladdin, and the time is, is flying by. And if it was for me, I, I would I would keep going. But the usual uh, final questions. All my interviews end end with the same one. So uh, obviously you are still young, uh, and uh, you know an enthusiastic researcher, and I'm sure you 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 know you'll face a number of of new challenges, and uh, and you know you will you will have a lot of satisfaction from your career. But you have already achieved a lot, so you might be in a position to actually give advice to someone who is just starting in their career? What would that be? The two main advice I would give is the first one is the patience. Um, so science is not easy. It takes a long time. Patience is, is, is extremely important. The second um, is also uh, trying to be more courageous. Try to step out of the comfort zone as much as you can, especially in the graduate studies. Uh, don't be afraid of that. Uh, so if you can build up that knowledge in terms of different areas, I would I really strongly encourage on that because 
this type of skill like the courage and being able to step easily out of the comfort zone is 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 very very important in scientific research in general and especially in industry if you'd like to go to industrial career you have to be able to step out of comfort zone much much more easily you need to be ready to do that and you need to have the mindset to do it so i think the courage and also step out of the comfort zone is is i really it's a strong advice that i give to everyone don't be afraid of that and try to if, even if you don't have this type of like mindset try to build it and try to learn that skill because it's really helpful that was dr alaidin alsbaye research scientist and project leader at dupont and one of the chemical and engineering news talented 12 thanks for joining us for this season 3 episode of bringing chemistry to life and keep an ear out for more if you enjoyed this conversation, you're sure to enjoy Dr. Alzbayez's book, video, podcast, and other content recommendations. In the episode notes that you can find wherever you listen to your podcast, you will see a URL where you can access these recommendations and register for a free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt. And finally, if you like this podcast, it would be really important for us if you shared it with your friends and colleagues. Help us spread the love for chemistry. This episode was produced by Sara Briganti, Matt Ferris and Matthew Stock.